it's also an indicator that an AI system is starting to resemble what we might describe as human intelligence. And this raises fears of artificial general intelligence. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 74 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Caput. It's good to have you back, Mike, after <laughs> doing a solo session last week. It's good to be back. Uh, how was the trip? Really nice, really yeah. nice. Good time away with family, uh, as we're going to discuss uh, being on a trip. Uh, typically is when everything happens in AI, it seems like. So we've got a lot to catch up on. I know I tried so hard last week to just sort of shut down. I had a couple of things on Tuesday I had to do. And then I, you know, I largely shut down Wednesday through today. So we're, you know, this is Monday, November 27th at 10 a.m. Eastern time. Um, but I was also just kind of passively trying to connect the dots on what was going on. And so I think we're going to, you know, anybody listened to episode 73, where I dove into sort of the story of what was going on at OpenAI and, you know, some possibilities of what, you know, may have been the cause of uh, Sam Altman and Greg Brockman leaving and then, you know, returning. Um, we're going to kind of expand on that today. I, I think there's some interesting connections to be made with some other things that are happening and some additional information that's come out a little bit. Um, so we're going to, we're going to go a little bit more into that, but first today's episode is brought to us by Accio, uh, the generative business intelligence platform that lets agencies add AI powered analytics and predictive modeling to their service offering. Accio lets your customers chat with their data, create real-time visualizations and make predictions. Just connect your data, add your logo and embed an AI analytics service to your site or Slack. You can get a free trial at Akio, that's A-K-K-I-O dot com slash A-I-Pod. So Akio.com slash A-I-Pod. All right, Mike, let's uh, let's get into it. We're back to our regularly scheduled programming with three main topics and rapid fire items. So that's all yours, Mike. All right. So this week we are coming up on a milestone here. It is the one year anniversary of ChatGPT's release, which is a development that has certainly transformed our world and the world of AI and made OpenAI one of the most significant companies we're likely to see in our lifetime. And this kind of coincides with coming off perhaps the most insane week in the company's history. This where we saw the company nearly implode after its board fired CEO Sam Altman. As you are no doubt aware, in AI, a day is like a week and a week is like a year. And in the last week, after getting fired, Altman is now back as CEO of OpenAI. As part of his return, there's also a new board, though it sounds like Adam D'Angelo from Quora, uh, was, was on the previous board, is also returning. Co-founder Greg Brockman, who quit in protest of Altman's firing, is also back. And significantly more details on the reason Altman was fired in the first place have started to emerge, though we don't have anything close to a full story yet. However, according to Reuters, before Altman was fired, quote, several staff researchers wrote a letter to the board of directors warning of a powerful AI discovery that they said could threaten humanity. Two people familiar with this topic reported this to Reuters. Now, this was one of many factors, it sounds like, that were involved in Altman's firing, according to these sources. And grievances also included concerns over how fast the company was commercializing advances in AI before understanding their consequences. Now, some of these concerns appear to revolve around a project at OpenAI called QSTAR. QSTAR is rumored to be an advanced model that the company developed, which can solve math problems that it hasn't seen before. Now, for some context here, within the AI research community, you know, a model's ability to do math is seen as a really important technical milestone. It's also a potential indicator that 
an AI system is starting to resemble what we might describe as human intelligence. And this raises fears of artificial general intelligence among some people. These fears appear to have been significant enough to have prompted Altman's firing. The information reported on this saying, quote, a demo of the model circulated within OpenAI in recent weeks and the pace of development alarmed some researchers focused on AI safety. Now, interestingly, QSTAR was created by two researchers on Ilya Sutskever's team. Sutskever was one of the leaders of the action to fire Altman. So, Paul, based on the context you gave in episode 73 and what you're seeing now, can you walk us through what's going on here and what might have prompted Altman's ouster? First, I'll say... You know, the Reuters and the information articles, which I think came out last Wednesday, Mm -hmm. I I believe, um, is really all we have. There hasn't been much talked about. There was apparently an email internally at OpenAI acknowledging this QSTAR program, but there's very little information about it. And so I'll kind of, I want to start by going through a little bit more from the information, which is the media outlet, which by the way, if you are fascinated by this stuff, pay the 159 a year, whatever it is for the information. Like it's, it's a fantastic source and they seem to always, um, get some great scoops. So it's one of the sources Mike and I read all the time to, you know, kind of keep up on this stuff. So. I kind of, you know, again, a lot of what they were having and what Reuters had was very similar. Um, The information seemed to go a little bit deeper. And the thing that caught my attention was, if you recall from episode uh, 73, if you listen to that episode where I kind of went into all of this, I kind of ended it with, you know, what did Sam see in that room that was the potential breakthrough? So he referenced, uh, you know, that a couple of weeks earlier, he had seen some major breakthrough, basically. So the information article starts off with one day before he was fired by OpenAI's board, Sam Altman alluded to a recent technical advance the company had made that allowed it to push the veil of ignorance back and the frontier of discovery forward. Uh, The crypto remarks at the Apex CEO summit went largely unnoticed as the company descended into turmoil. The article went on to say, but some OpenAI employees believe Altman's comments referred to an innovation by the company's researchers earlier this year that would allow them to develop far more powerful AI models. A person familiar with the matter said, the technical breakthrough, as you said, Mike, spearheaded by OpenAI chief scientist Ilya Sutskova, raised concerns among some staff that the company didn't have proper safeguards in place to commercialize such advanced AI models. Now, part of the friction appears to be that Sam and Greg obviously were aware of this capability, and it sounds like maybe they were not only not stopping it, but they were potentially building some of these capabilities into GPT-5 and that the GPT's release was actually meant to accelerate some of what was being developed within this QSTAR program. So again, not just that they were not stopping it, but that they were racing forward to commercialize it. So then come back to the information article, said in the following months, senior OpenAI researchers used the innovation to build systems that could solve basic math problems, a difficult task for existing AI models. Um, then it says two of the top researchers used Sutskova's work to build a model called QSTAR that was able to solve math problems that it hadn't seen before, an important technical milestone, and that a demo of this had circulated in recent weeks and the pace of development alarmed some researchers. So again, the timing of this demo seems to align with Sam referencing something he had seen internally in that Apex CEO summit. Um, said Sutskova's team, this work had not been previously reported and a concern inside the organization suggests that tensions within OpenAI about the pace of work will continue even after Altman was reinstated. Uh, in the months following the breakthrough, Sutskova, who also sat on OpenAI's board until he got fired or released from the board, he did not get fired, um, released from the board, appears to have had reservations about the technology. In July, and now this is where the timing is going to start becoming relevant to the other stuff we're going to talk about today. So in July, if we recall from episode 73, Sutskova formed a team dedicated to limiting threats from AI systems vastly smarter than humans. On its webpage, the team says, while superintelligence seems far off, now we believe it could arrive this decade. Now that refers to the super alignment team that Sutskova formed. I think they announced the July 6th of this year. 
Um, Sitzko's breakthroughs allowed OpenAI to overcome limitations on obtaining enough high quality data to train new models. According to a person with knowledge, uh, a major obstacle for developing next generation models. The research involved using computer generated rather than real world data like text and images pulled from the internet to train models. Now, I'll pause here because if you're unfamiliar with the areas of research within the AI community, this may sound like some crazy thing. Synthetic data is being used by everyone. So every major research lab is not only talking about and researching, but using synthetic data. Tesla uses it to train their cars. Anthropic, we talked in an earlier episode about how Anthropic is using it and how Dario Amade, the founder and CEO of Anthropic, thinks that it can be a key unlock. So synthetic data, while in this article, isn't given the context of this is a widespread thing, it is in fact a widespread thing. So this this paragraph isn't really anything I don't think significant to like, you know, some advancement that open AI is making other people aren't. It went on to say for years, Setsuka had been working on ways to allow language models like GPT-4 to solve tasks that involved reasoning, like math and science problems. In 2021, he launched a project called GPT-0, a nod to DeepMind's Alpha Zero program that could play chess, Go, and sh Shogi. Um, I boldface this one. The team hypothesized that giving language models more time and computing power to generate responses to questions could allow them to develop new academic breakthroughs. This time concept is going to become very important. We're going to hit on this again and again in, in the coming topics. So we'll come back to that. Um, uh, Lucas Kaiser, one of the co-authors of the groundbreaking Transformer research paper from Google in 2017 which describes an invention that paved the way for more sophisticated AI models, held a key role on the GPT-0 project. So again, you start to see all these interconnections between that, you know, attention is all you need paper, the eight or nine authors of that paper and their, you know, relevance to all everything that's going on here. Um, among the techniques the team experimented with was a machine learning concept known as test time computation, which is meant to boost language models, problem solving abilities. Okay. So this sounds really complicated. It's not. Basically, it means if you give these things more time, they show more reasoning capability. They, if you don't give them, ask for like an instant response, like you go into chat, you see like, write me an article, write me an email, whatever. It just does it instinctually. Like it just takes its data and goes. If you ask it to solve a more complex like story problem, it, it's not really good at it because it just immediately does something based on its training data. What they're saying here is if you give it more time to think, and to work through reasoning capabilities, it actually seems to do it. And so that's this idea of this test time computation. Again, we're going to come back around to this topic in a couple of minutes. So earlier this year, Sutsuka and his team discovered a variation of this test time computation method that prompted far greater results in their efforts to train more sophisticated models. Now, this to me is where it starts to get interesting. This is where you start to see something different. So the, the thing I thought was a little misleading or that people I saw on social media kind of latch onto right away was this Q star thing. And as, as though it was like on its own, some groundbreaking thing, the general belief is that the Q star is referencing Q learning, which is actually a, a known form of reinforcement learning in AI research and development. So it's this idea that, so I actually asked ChatGPT, I'd never heard of Q learning. So I asked ChatGPT for an explanation and I went and kind of verified the definition on Google. But what ChatGPT said was it's a key algorithm in AI that helps machines learn optimal behaviors through trial and error, making it crucial for the development of autonomous systems and decision-making. Its simplicity combined with its power has made it a staple of AI research and applications. Um, so again, Q learning, which seems to be the origin of the name of Q star, isn't new. Um, as a matter of fact, Jan LeCun, who we often talk about, who runs the research lab at Facebook and Meta, he tweeted, please ignore the deluge of complete nonsense about Q star. One of the main challenges to improve language models reliability is to replace, this gets technical, autoregressive token prediction with planning, meaning it's just predicting the next token or next word in a sequence. And you're trying to improve that by giving these things planning capabilities. It says pretty much every top lab, FAIR, which is Facebook's, DeepMind, OpenAI, et cetera, is working on that. And some have already published ideas and results. 
it is likely that QSTAR is OpenAI's attempts at planning. They pretty much hired Noam Brown to work on that. Uh, and then he also added, note, I've been advocating for deep learning architecture capable planning since 2016. Now, one other interesting thing real quick I will share to understand this Q-learning concept. It was Thanksgiving week. I think this was Wednesday. And so I said to ChatGPT, explain it to, uh, how can I explain Q-learning to my family at Thanksgiving dinner? I actually thought this was pretty good. So it said, um, it can be fun and engaging experience, blah, blah, blah. So it said, we'll use a turkey analogy. Imagine you're trying to cook the perfect Thanksgiving turkey. You have a variety of actions to choose from. Oven temperature, how often to baste, what seasonings to use. Each combination of these actions can lead to a different result. A delicious turkey, a dry turkey, or maybe even a burnt one. So in Q-learning, the AI learns from trial and error. It learns from mistakes. So it said, just like when you first learn to cook, you might make mistakes. Maybe the turkey gets overcooked or it's not seasoned enough. But with each attempt, you learn a little more about what works and what doesn't. So then the Q learning has a quality score that basically applies a quality score to each output in essence. So the Q stands for quality of each action you take. Think of it as a score for each decision you make while cooking. A high score means a great tasting turkey. A low score means you might need to order a pizza. So basically, Q learning is a way for the AI to learn from its actions through trial and error and then kind of remember what led to a greater Q score in essence. So I think, you know, at, at a high level, that's the key here. Now, I want to go back to the Noam Brown reference, because I think this is actually a really key aspect of everything. So if we recall on July 5th um, of this year, that's when Ilya and Jan Leike uh, introduced super alignment team at OpenAI. So July 5th. On July 6th, Noam Brown announced he was joining OpenAI. Now, I'm going to go to the tweet thread, and we'll put this in the show notes, when Noam Brown announced this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of stretch a couple of key points here. So he announced, I am thrilled to share that I have joined OpenAI. Now, he was previously at Meta. I'll get to that in a minute. So he came from the Meta Research Lab under Jan LeCun. So he worked for Jan LeCun. So it said, for years, I have researched AI self-play and reasoning. You're going to hear the word reasoning a lot in games like poker and diplomacy. I'll now investigate how to make these methods truly general. Artificial general intelligence. Remember, the term general is, not, is, a, is a meaningful word here. If successful, we may one day see large language models that are 1,000 times better than GPT-4. I'm going to stop here and say Noam Brown didn't leave Meta unless he knew OpenAI was working on this stuff and that there was a path to apply his research immediately. He's not leaving to go do this three to five years from now. So timing-wise, whatever this QSTAR program is, whatever the breakthrough is, probably happened earlier in 2023. That led to some major advancements and the creation of the super alignment team. So again, they didn't create the super alignment team overnight. So you probably realized there was some breakthrough, the need for the super alignment team emerged, and they bring in Noam Brown to work on this exact thing. So Noam goes on to say in 2016, AlphaGo beat Lee Sedol in a milestone for AI. Mike and I wrote about this in our book, Marketing Artificial Intelligence. But the key to that was AI's ability to ponder, again, go back to the time idea, to ponder for approximately one minute before each move. How much did that improve it? For AlphaGo Zero, it's the equivalent of scaling pre-training 100,000x. What that means is the model improved its quality of output, its prediction, 100,000x by not taking the move immediately, instinctually, based on its data, but actually pondering the move, reasoning through what to do. He goes on to say, also in 2016, I observed a similar phenomenon in poker. That insight led to our Libratus poker AI, I don't know if I'm saying that right, that beat top humans for the first time. Andy Jones investigated the train to time, test time compute trade-off in detail in a paper. Then I went on to say, all those prior methods are specific to the game, but if, but here's the key, but if we can discover a general version the benefits could be huge. 
Yes, inference may be 1,000 times slower. That means coming up with the output, like the time it takes to come up with the output, maybe 1,000 times slower and more costly. But inference cost, but what inference cost would we pay for a new cancer drug or a proof of the Reinman hypothesis? Improved capabilities are always risky. <laughs> Super Lyman team was built the day before. Improved capabilities are always risky. But if this research succeeds, it could be valuable for safety research as well. Imagine being able to spend $1 million on inference to see what a more capable future model might look like. It would give us a warning that we otherwise lack. So when I started kind of connecting that, and I'll, I'll put in the show notes, we wrote about Gnome in uh, February 1st of this year. I, I wrote a blog post called Meta's AI, Meta AI Cicero provides a glimpse into the future of human-machine collaboration, where it talked about some of Gnome's research. Um, and then we also talked about that in a tweet, uh, or I'm sorry, in an episode earlier this year. So when we start to consider all of this, we get beyond just the Q learning thing and we start looking at everything else that was going on, who was being hired. Keep in mind, Andres Karpathy, who we're going to talk about next, he rejoined AI and uh, OpenAI in February of this year. So I think they already were making these breakthroughs by February of 2023. Um, so what could OpenAI be working on that could cause so much commotion? And what does the hiring of Noam Brown and even earlier than that, Andres Karpathy, and their work potentially tell us. And that takes us to our next main topic, Mike. There is some method to the madness <laughs> behind the topics this week. So pay close attention because they do link up pretty well. And you may want to go back and like re-listen to this because I know we're, we're trying to pack a lot in here, but trust me, it, it all connects. And I think that the picture is going to become more clear as we go through this. So in our next topic, Andre Kaprathi, who you just mentioned, a leading expert in AI who works at OpenAI, just released a public version of a talk that he's given called The Busy Person's Intro to LLMs, Large Language Models. Now, on the surface, this is a one plus hour video. It's very useful, highly accessible introduction to how large language models work. It has a bunch of very practical examples. I'd highly recommend anyone with a deeper interest in this take a look at it. But as part of this video, Karpathy also speculates on the future of LLMs. And in doing so, he highlights a couple of really important points that I think give us some clues as to where all this may be headed. So first, he encourages us to think of LLMs not as chatbots. It's actually more correct to think of them as the kernel process of an emerging operating system. So LLMs as an OS. And second, LLMs as operating systems in just a few years, by his estimation, may increasingly be able to use different media and actual tools, digital tools, to solve problems just like humans do. So he says we could see relatively soon LLMs that have capabilities like having more knowledge than any single human about a given subject, the ability to browse the internet, use existing software infrastructure to complete tasks in certain narrow domains, actually self-improve at how it gets its results, and obviously understanding and generating text, images, video, and audio. He also does call out the idea, Paul, that you highlighted in the previous topic, the ability to think deeply on hard problems for a longer time than just a snap judgment. And last but not least, he predicts we may have LLMs that could communicate with other LLMs. So there's a little more going on in this video than just a 101 class on LLM. So Paul, can you maybe connect those dots a little further for us? So... First, I think it's good to revisit Karpathy's background. So he was actually a founding member of OpenAI. So he was there from January 2016 to June 2017. Um, we talked about Andres in uh, February 21st uh, this year, episode 35. So if you want some more background on him and a, a paper he worked on called World of Bits was the key thing that we uh, focused on and I actually wrote a blog post about it at that time as well that we'll link to. Um, but in 
in essence, he he then went on after OpenAI to work at Tesla. He led the the AI team there, and he developed the computer vision team that was critical to full self driving. So he played a key role there. But then when he announced he was going back to OpenAI in February, actually February eighth of this year, that was what caught my attention and led to me writing a blog post, uh, going back and re-listening to an episode he had done with Lex Friedman, a podcast interview he had done. I was trying to figure out why was he going back to OpenAI, what was going on. And so he actually alluded to it. I'll read a quick uh, excerpt from the transcript of his interview with Lex Friedman, because Lex asked him, like, why are you going back to OpenAI? What is going on? Or like, really, what do you think the future is? This was before he actually announced he was going back. He said, do you think there's a future for that kind of system interacting with the internet to help learning? So they were talking specifically about like AI agents. We've talked a lot about how the future is going to be these agents that can take actions, not just produce outputs. So Karpathy said, yes, I think that's probably the final frontier for a lot of these models. So as you mentioned, when I was at OpenAI, I was working on this project, World of Bits. And basically it was the idea of giving neural networks access to a keyboard and a mouse. And the idea is that basically you perceive the input of the screen pixels and the state of the computer is visualized for human consumption and images of the web browser and stuff like that. And then you give the network the ability to press keyboards and use the mouse. And we're trying to get to it. For example, complete bookings and interact with user interfaces. So again, the reason I'm giving this context is you have to understand Karpathy went back to OpenAI in February of this year to work on what I'm explaining right now, followed by Noam Brown in July, followed by what has happened over the last two weeks. It's all connected, trust me. So Karpathy then goes on to say, now to your question as to what I learned from that, it's interesting because the world of bits was basically too early. So again, 2016, 17, it was too early to give these AI agents the ability to take action. This is around 2015 or so. And the zeitgeist at the time was very different in AI than today. He said, it is time to revisit that. And OpenAI is interested in this. Companies like Adept, which we've talked about before on the show, are interested in this and so on. And the idea is coming back because the interface is very powerful, but now you're not training agents from scratch. You are taking the GPT as an initialization, meaning the ability now for the AI to understand and generate language. So GPT is pre-trained on all this text. And so now the agent understands what a booking is. It understands what a submit is. It understands quite a bit more. And so it already has those representations. These are very powerful and make all the training significantly more efficient. So Karpathy is critical to a lot of the last like seven years of, of AI. He's been a key player. And so he went back to OpenAI to work on these interactive agents, but in the process obviously goes very deep on language models. So he doesn't publish often on YouTube. And so when he does, you pay attention. And so I found this video extremely intriguing on a number of levels. So first was, I think it gives a great overview of how a large language model works. I would say it's like, a, it's not a beginner level introduction, I wouldn't say. Like, I feel like you need some basic comprehension of large language models for this introduction to make sense. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely kind of like a 201 level. It is not highly technical. Like, I really think everybody should go listen to it, maybe listen to it a couple times, depending on your current familiarity with large language models. But I really do think it gets this great overview of how they work. But what I want to focus on is like the last 20, 25 minutes of the video where he went into what comes next. Now, I found this intriguing because one, I think he's right, obviously. I mean, he knows more than I do. Two, it confirms everything I've been hearing from the other research labs. Three, the timing is really intriguing. Like the fact that he's presenting this as, hey, I'm not saying this is open AI doing this, but this is what the research labs are doing because they're all connected. They've all worked with each other the last 10 years. He knows what the other labs are doing, just like Jan LeCun knows what the other labs are doing. Mm. So I think it's fair to say the things we're about to go through are things that not just open AI is working on, but OpenAI is definitely working on. So um, one, large language model scaling laws. So we hear this term scaling laws all the time. What does it actually mean? What it means in their case, and, and this is one of the things I kind of learned from this, is it it is all about the accuracy of the model at predicting the next word. So today, large language models are basically predictive engines around what the next word is it should write. And so what he's saying is, so far, 
the more parameters we give these things, the more training data we give them, and then the time we spend training them, they pretty we can pretty much predict how accurately they're going to generate the next word. And that his opinion and their data says that shows no signs of topping out. So in essence, training bigger models for longer and you get more powerful and accurate results. We're going to talk about a number of these foundation models in, in the rapid fire today. So what he said, and again, I find the use of the wording interesting, we can expect a lot more general capability across all areas of knowledge as these models get bigger. So that was one. Two, connecting to and integrating tools makes the models more capable. So think about what they've been doing with ChatGPT. You had Code Interpreter, you have Bing Search added, it has Calculator now, it has image generation and recognition. It will have video generation and recognition. It will have audio generation and recognition. So what OpenAI has been doing thus far is connecting uh, tools to the model. They're not baked into the model per se. Now I think GPT-5 will be different. And the reason I think that is because I just read an interview with Sundar Pichai of Google and he said that Gemini, their approach is different in that these tools are built into the foundation model itself. So they're not going out and building an image generation tool and then connecting it. That's what BART is today. But the next iteration, these models will all be built right in. These tools will be built right into the foundation model. So truly multimodal, which is number three, which we know, again, they're building in these capabilities of images, videos, audio, text, code, all of that is getting built right into the models. Number four. This goes back to what we talked about earlier, and I think this is a really interesting concept. So he talked about a book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by, I forget the guy's name, Daniel something. Um, and in that book, which I bought, I haven't read it yet, um, they talk about system one thinking is, system one thinking is instinctive. It is what the large language, model, large language models are right now. So a system one model, you give it an input and it immediately gives you an output just takes its training data and spits out the answer. System two thinking, you have to work things out in your head. You think through possible outcomes. You think through the implications of those outcomes. Maybe in the Q learning model, you think through the potential score or value of the future state once you take the action. So he said, that is where we are going, is we're going to build models that have this reasoning capability. And so the more time you take to generate the output, the more accurate the prediction becomes. So right now you can sort of see parts of this where if you tell ChatGPT, like take your time or think it through step-by-step, step, it tends to improve the accuracy. Now, interesting again, how it's all connected. Meta on November 20th just released a research paper called System 2 Attention, and then in parentheses, is something you might need too, which I actually laughed at. So you'll appreciate that, Mike. So we go back to the origin of all this, 2017, the Transformer paper, the title was Attention is All You Need. So meta system to attention is something you might need too, is kind of funny. Yeah. So in there, they basically talk about this premise that the more time you give these models, the better they get at reasoning. Number five, my takeaways and, and what he highlighted in the future was self-improvement. And so... He talked a lot about AlphaGo. So again, if you haven't watched the AlphaGo documentary uh, that tells the story of DeepMind beating the world champion at Go, watch it. You will understand this even you know more. So he talks about how you know traditionally these models learn through imitating human experts at players, but what AlphaGo did, what the DeepMind team did, was they they enabled self improvement by enabling it to play against itself, and the reward function was did you win or not. And so the way that AlphaGo got way better, got superhuman at the game of Go, was it played itself millions of times and it learned what to do. So he asked the question, Karpathy was like, what is the equivalent for large language models? So right now, these models use imitation of human labeling and training data. So he explains like, you know, you, you build the model and then humans go through and, you know, provide labeling and training of the data. And... So it just basically imitates us. So the question becomes, and I think this is where the real potential breakthrough in QSTAR is happening, is how do we move to self-improvement of these models so where we don't have to rely on human labeling and training of the model once it's been created? So the question that they grapple with is, what is the reward function? 
So in a game like AlphaGo, you win or you lose. That's the reward. You get more points if you win than if you lose. But in a language model where it just creates an output, how, how, do you, how do you reward that? How do you know if it was good or bad? Right now, there's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Like maybe that's part of their early effort. Um, but he said, it's not easy to evaluate reward function in an LLM. And so I made the note to myself, like, is this the breakthrough? Like, did they find a way to provide a reward system? Um, because right now they can only do it in narrow domains. And so he said, it's an open question in the field, but my thesis at the moment is maybe it's not as open as we think of a question, um, that if they could find a way to, to drive self-improvement, that that would rapidly scale the capabilities of an AI toward AGI. Um, the number six was customization. We want to be able to customize and have them become experts at specific tasks, thus the GPT model. So they enabled this early on through GPTs where you can go in and create your own version of chat GPT. It lets you add knowledge and then a real key. It uses retrieval augmented generation or RAG as probably heard about lately. If you follow the space to create outputs, what that lets you have happen is rather than relying on a general chat GPT model, um, based on GPT-4, you give it documentation, like your internal documents from your company and say, look up the answer here. So it then goes and retrieves information from the source data you've provided. And he also gets into a little bit about fine-tuning models. And then the last thing deals with what you talked about, Mike, of this operating system idea. He shared a really, uh, I, I thought, a slide that's, I, I think, potentially really important. Like, we'll look back two years from now and be like, oh, he just laid out the whole roadmap. And I think that's what he did. So I think at the end, he actually said, here's what we're working on. Here's what everyone is working on. This is what we know is already happening. So I'll just highlight those bullet points and then turn it back over to you, Mike. So the first is the LLM in a few years is how he, he wrote it. It has more knowledge than any single human about all subject, which you touched on, Mike. It can browse the internet or reference local files through RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation. It can use the existing software infrastructure, calculator, Python, mouse, keyboard. Mouse, keyboard goes back to the world of bits. It can see and generate images and video. We're starting to see that happening. It can hear and speak and generate music. We're starting to see that happening. It can think for a long time using a system too. That's the one we just touched on. That's coming. It can self-improve in narrow domains that offer a reward function. That's what we just touched on. It can be customized and fine-tuned for, for specific tasks. Many versions exist in app stores. And then it can communicate with other large language models. So I don't know. I mean, I think when you, when you process everything he talks about, it actually starts to become pretty clear where the breakthroughs could have happened. And again, I think it could be any of them, but I think it's probably a safe bet. It has something to do with reasoning capabilities and the reason Noam Brown joined OpenAI. It has to do with giving it more time to process things. And I would make a big bet that self-improvement has a real key aspect of it. They have found some way to self-improve because once you do that, it becomes harder to keep these things from progressing at a rate that we're not prepared for in society. So I know that was a lot. Mike, you watched it too. Is there anything that I didn't touch on that jumped out to you or just any other thoughts you had about it? No, I just think it's worth reemphasizing that what we're talking about is literally the speculation from a very informed person building this technology that we are going to very quickly have large language models or call them multimodal models, whatever term you want to use, that can know more about subjects than any single human and can do all these things. And that to me sounds like something severe enough that they almost torpedoed and destroyed the entire company over fears about it. So I think the severity of the response, whether it was right or wrong or indifferent, is something to keep in mind as you are evaluating this, because I don't think you torpedo one of the top companies on the planet over hypothetical concerns personally. Yeah, I think it's reasonable to to assume that the outline of those last few bullet points I said, like LLM in a few years, that that isn't the blueprint for GPT-5. Mm. Like that, that's what they're building. It's what everybody's building. It's what Gemini probably looks like. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just, again, like you said, the key for us is 
we just go to the source. Like we're not looking at some you know, overnight AI expert or influencer online and like trying to draw some conclusions. This is years of tracking like the key players in the industry, trying to connect why does Gnome go you know, three months after uh, Andres? Why is Super Alignment announced the day after Gnome joined? Like why has hmm. all this happened? And I think when you start going to those, you know, the, the actual sources of the information, when they're willing to put it out there in interviews or online courses or whatever it is, you have to really add, you know, again, like a language model, you have to add heavier weights to the information coming from the actual sources. And I think in this case, um, there's probably a lot to what he's laying out beyond just his ideas. I, I think this is very real about the, the blueprint being followed within these research labs. Yeah. And I would just, as a final note, add that if you go back over the past year, especially, but even further back, your predictions on a lot of this stuff have been quite spot on. Obviously we don't get everything right, but your strategy of going straight to the source and reading between the lines has predicted some of these things functionally months in advance. Yeah. And I th like, that's, you know, I think Noam is a good example of that and Andres too. Like, there's no coincidences in this space. Like I've been studying this space long enough to know that, you know, there's usually reasons why all this stuff appears to be connected because it actually is connected. Mm. That's actually a very good segue into the third final topic here, because uh, we just got an interesting article from AI expert and Wharton professor, Ethan Malik, who published this preliminary blueprint for how companies should be reinventing themselves due to the organizational changes caused by AI. Now, Malik doesn't have, it doesn't work for open AI, but he often sees behind the curtain quite a bit with some special access he gets. So I think it's also quite interesting. He is publishing this now because he basically notes that with the tools we already have, the AI technology that already exists, we're already having the ability to radically change the way we work. He says, quote, theoretical discussions become practical, drudge work is removed, and even more importantly, hours of meetings are eliminated and the remaining meetings are more impactful and useful. A process that used to take a week can be reduced to a day or two. Now, this is where he sees us already being at today and much, much more may be possible in the near future. He writes, we can already see a world where autonomous AI agents start with a concept and go all the way to code and deployment with minimal human intervention. Importantly, this is, in fact, a stated goal of OpenAI's next phase of product development. It is likely that entire tasks can be largely outsourced to these agents with humans acting as survivors or supervisors. Now, his point here is that AI is impacting companies already and managers need to start taking an active role in shaping what this looks like. Uh, he fully admits, I don't have all the answers yet, but does offer some advice for doing so. Um, just briefly, some of that advice is letting teams develop their own methods because AIs perform more like people than software, even though they are software, they are best managed as additional team members. Teams will need to figure out their own ways to use AI through experimentation and a way of sharing those methods with each other and with leadership. He also says you should be building for the oncoming future. In this article, everything I've shown you is already possible today using GPT-4. If we learned one thing from the OpenAI leadership drama, it is clear that more advanced models are coming and coming fast. Organizational change takes time, so those adapting processes to AI should be considering future versions of AI rather than just building for the models of today. And this last piece of advice I found interesting it is coming at this particular juncture. He says straight up, you don't have time. If the sort of efficiency gains we are seeing from early AI experiments continue, organizations that wait to experiment will fall behind very quickly. If we can truly trim a weeks long process into a days long one, that is a profound change to how work gets done. Now, Paul, we obviously are very close followers of Ethan Mollick. I found the timing of this interesting. I found the stark language he used interesting. What were your thoughts on his advice? 
Yeah, a couple other excerpts that jumped out to me. He talked about uh, how anyone can add intelligence to a project with AI and evidence shows that people are already doing this. They're just not telling their bosses. So he cited a survey that found over half of people using AI at work are doing so without approval. And 64% have passed off AI work as their own, which should be terrifying to people who understand the copyright implications of that and other concerns. I uh, said this sh sort of shadow AI use is possible as large language models are uniquely suited to handling organizational roles. They work at a human scale. They can read documents, write emails, adapt to context, and assist with projects without requiring users to have specialized training or complex custom-built software. Um, what does it mean for organizations when we acknowledge that this is happening? How to rebuild an organization on a fundamental shift in the way work is done, organized, and communicated? And as you said, he doesn't have the answers. Nobody does. Um, but it's impacting organizations and managers have to start taking an active role. Now, his three points at the end that you outlined, I just wanted to add a couple of thoughts on those. So the first is let teams develop their own methods. Great in theory. Uh, like, I don't see how that works. Like we talk with a lot of big enterprises and a lot of enterprises are not only restricting, but limiting or limiting, they're, they're restricting access to, to AI tools. Mm. Um, so if you're going to follow this premise, which I actually believe in, like I do think that we have to democratize the access to these tools and the innovation that can come from them. I think that the practitioners will be the people finding the most interesting use cases when they're given the freedom to explore them and experiment. But in a lot of big enterprises, they're not going to be allowed to, no matter how much we say that that's the path forward. So at minimum, I think organizations really need to get their generative AI policies and responsible AI principles in place to allow this to happen. So even if you're an organization that's like, yeah, go for it, like our organizations, like, yeah, test stuff, like whatever, you know, you, go ahead. Like as long as you're not connecting it to sensitive data, like go ahead and, and test whatever you want and find some use cases, you still need to give people the guardrails of what they're allowed to do and make sure that they understand how to properly use these tools. Otherwise, you're putting your organization at risk. The second thing is build for the future. I agree a hundred percent. We talk about this all the time in our, when we do presentations, when we run workshops, but I struggle to find uh, any organizations that are uh, correctly planning for the present. Mm. So like it's most companies we talk to, most big enterprises, they don't have a plan for what to do about GPT-4. Like most people, when you pull them, haven't even tried ChatGPT+. Their, their perception of what AI does is the free version of ChatGPT. So I agree 100% that the, the more forward-thinking organizations, the ones that will win, are thinking about everything we just went through in the previous topic. They're thinking about what is a, what is a large language model 6, 12 months from now? What's it going to be capable of? What does that mean to us? But I, I just don't see organizations planning in that way. Um, I hope that changes in 2024, but as of right now, we're talking to the companies that are building their plans for 2024 and they have not built this into them. Um, and the last is you don't have time. Like this is going to happen fast, but agree hundred <laughs> percent. So what I'll reiterate is the way we teach this, the way we teach it in workshops, the way we teach this, when we do advisory work, there's five steps that every company needs to be taking. And it's a good time to remind this as we're nearing the end of 2023. Number one, education and training. You have to get your team on board with this. To get team experimentation, to give them the freedom to do this, they have to know how to use it. To find the right pilot projects in your company, you need team-wide understanding of it. So prioritize education and training going into next year. You have to have an AI council that guides the development of this, the monitoring of the progress. Um, that council should be cross-functional throughout your organization, not just marketing, but sales and service and you know, operations and um, finance and legal and everything. Uh, policies and principles, we talked about number three, get the generative AI policies and responsible AI principles in place and then adhere to them, teach them, make them a part of the culture. Number four, if you're talking about like building for the future, you have to do impact assessments of your team. What is the, how is AI gonna impact the roles in your organization? How's it gonna impact your products and services, your operations? And then the last piece is build an AI roadmap that lays out the priority projects that are gonna be initiated how it's going to affect different teams, how it's going to affect the tech stack. So I, I love Ethan's, you know, thinking, obviously, in his writing. I think that there's, beyond the three points he outlines, you, you really need to take action now and, and start thinking about those other five steps that I just outlined and what you can do in your organization 
starting in December to, to get that stuff moving. Yeah, I would hope the main thread that people realize running through these three main topics is it's probably time to act with some urgency. Excellent. All right. Let's jump into some quick rapid fire topics. We have a bunch of other updates that are significant this past week. So first up, Anthropic has released Claude 2.1, which is the latest version of its powerful foundation model. Now, interestingly, the model has what they're calling an industry leading context window size of 200,000 tokens. It also has a 2x decrease in hallucination rates compared to the previous version of Claude. This new version also has the ability to integrate Claude with other services, databases, and APIs, and also an upgraded developer experience. Now, the context window and decrease in hallucination rates seem particularly notable. So regarding this enlarged context window, Anthropic says, you can now relay roughly 150,000 words or over 500 pages of information to Claude. That means you can upload entire code bases, financial statements, or long literary works for Claude to summarize, perform Q&A, forecast trends, compare and contrast multiple documents, and more. They also say about the decrease in hallucination rates that these, quote, enable enterprises to build high-performing applications that solve business problems with accuracy and reliability. Now, you can actually test drive this new version of Claude by going to Claude.ai or using Anthropic's API. So, Paul, this seems like a fairly significant step forward for Anthropic. Can you give us some more context about just how significant it is? Yeah, I think just more of the context around the company. We, we talk about Anthropic a lot. Uh, so they were founded in 2021. Dario Amade was uh, a leading uh, executive at OpenAI, uh, focused on safety. <clears throat> he felt OpenAI was uh, uh, deviating from their original mission of AI uh, for the good of humanity. So he left and took 10% of the OpenAI team with him. They have since raised $5.5 billion. And if you recall from episode 73, I think I talked about this, the board, one of OpenAI's initiatives over the weekend, so they fired Sam on a Friday, I think by Saturday, they reached out to Dario to see if uh, merging OpenAI and Anthropic was an option. Mm. So Anthropic's a, a major player here. Um, they are focused on AI safety. They believe that the way to achieve AI safety and protect humanity from these AGI systems that are coming is to build big, powerful models so you can learn how to protect against them. Um, so that's kind of the story behind Anthropic. You're going to continue to hear about them nonstop. They're a, a, a key um, company in the future of AI. So we've also seen another big model update with at Inflection AI. This is the company that creates the Pi chatbot, and they unveiled a new AI model called Inflection 2. The company claims this model can actually outperform Palm 2 from Google on a number of standard benchmarks, and it says it can outperform Meta's Llama 2 on different measures. And they've said that this new, more powerful model is soon going to be integrated into Pi. So, Paul, I'm kind of curious, given the context behind Anthropic, what is some similar context around inflection that's kind of helpful to understand how they fit into this ecosystem? So founded in 2022 by Mustafa Salomon, who was one of the co-founders of DeepMind. So when we talked about AlphaGo earlier from DeepMind, which is now the main research lab within Google, Mustafa was one of the co-founders. I believe he worked on AlphaGo. I think that was one of the, the things he was working on. Um, they've raised over a billion dollars so far. He publicly has said that they had, I think it was in uh, August, they had 6,000 uh, GPUs from NVIDIA. That was what they were doing their training on. By December of this year, he said they would have 22,000 and that they were going to continue to train more powerful models, which as we learned earlier, if you watch the intro to AI from Karpathy, you will understand that the more GPUs from NVIDIA they have, the more powerful training runs they can do. Um, he recently released a book called The Coming Wave, which I have read. I don't know if have you read The Coming Wave yet, Mike. I have not yet. No, it's, it's good. It, it, it's very macro level. He's a very smart guy, obviously, on a lot of different topics, but Coming wave is good if you want to go deeper and understand like broader implications to the world. Um, so again, Inflection's a key company. Their approach is personal assistance. They want this thing to be your friend, your therapist, your business coach, your strategist. 
Um, you know, again, if you're only experimenting with ChatGPT, you're not getting the true sense of what's going on out there. I, I think inflection, if you're, you know, let's say once a month, you, you know, dedicate half a day to testing these models and seeing what's going on, you're going to test ChatGPT. You're probably going to test Google Bard, Anthropics, Claude for sure. Inflection is a different experience. So I, I think to, to understand where we are, where we're going, playing around with inflection will give you a greater sense of some of the other capabilities that are being developed and some of the different approaches to how to build these models. So it turns out Google's Bard chatbot can now answer questions about YouTube videos. So this happens now through the YouTube extension for Bard. And previously that extension allowed you to simply find different videos, but now you can ask Bard specific questions about a video's contents. So as an example, Google uh, says, for example, if you're looking for videos on how to make olive oil cake, you can now also ask how many eggs the recipe in the first video requires. So Paul, this sounds like they're baking in essentially the ability to chat with and query YouTube data that's locked into videos. How significant do you see that being? No, no pun intended on the baking thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're starting to see the path forward for Google, you know, the more they integrate their own uh, solutions and tools into Bard, the more valuable Bard becomes. So connecting it to Gmail, connecting it to YouTube, having it have these kind of video recognition capabilities where it's able to see in theory what's going on in the video, as well as interpreting the transcript and giving you the ability to search the transcript. And again, I think this is just a prelude to Google's Gemini model, which I assume will have this all built right into the foundation model itself. Mm -hmm. Right now it's happening by connecting to these other things, but I, I assume it's going to kind of all be rolled together in, in Gemini. So 11 Labs, which is a leading voice cloning tool, has released a speech-to-speech -to -speech tool, which acts as an AI-powered voice co converter. According to the company, it lets you turn the recording of one voice to sound as if spoken by another. It lets you control the emotions, tone and pronunciation beyond what's possible with text-to-speech prompts alone. So 11 Labs sees the primary use cases for this tool revolving around extracting emotions from voices or fine-tuning the intonation in voices as desired. So Paul, we've talked a bit about voice cloning, uh, voice converting technology. It sounds like this space is moving very, very fast. Yeah, I, I haven't tested 11 Labs myself yet, but I watch them pretty closely. And yeah, yeah I think we're going to just see a lot of innovation in the audio speech space moving into the, the coming year. <clears throat> and so much uh, capability is going to be unlocked for good and bad. I mean, you can obviously see how this goes really wrong. And it it, it seems like they just kind of put stuff out into the way. It's kind of like stability, which we'll talk about next. Like they're of the the model of like, just put it into the world and let, let people figure it out for themselves, mm -hmm. um, the good and bad uses. So yeah, I, I know some people in my network have been playing with 11 labs and been impressed by it. Cool. So you did mention stability AI and they just announced the release of stable video diffusion, which is their first foundation model for generative video. And like some models from Runway, who we've talked about before, stable video diffusion generates video using AI. And Stability is claiming stable video diffusion even surpasses Runway's models in user preference studies. Right now, this model is only in a research preview, so the company has stated it's not ready yet for commercial use. They did announce, however, you can start signing up via waitlist for a new text-to-video interface. And they said that this tool showcases the practical applications of stable video diffusion in numerous sectors, including advertising, education, entertainment, and beyond. So, Paul, it sounds like an early release here, but you had seen some signals that Imad, the uh, CEO of Stable Stability AI, actually might be hinting at something more to come. Yeah, he's like one of the best vague tweeters out there. Like he he always tweets like stuff about what's coming from other people, like what he's hearing from other labs and then his own lab. So in this case, he was tweeting about his own. It just said, this was last night, so this was on Sunday night, November 26th. Should we release bunches of models at once or like one every few days with the pondering emoji? 
So I, I would expect more is coming from stability uh, before the year ends. All right. And last but not least on the docket today, foundation model company Cohere just launched uh, some new fine tuning capabilities. So these include things like the ability to do fine tuning for chat, fine tuning for search and recommendation systems, and fine tuning related to text analysis use cases. The company said that these latest additions alongside our existing generative fine tuning solution complete a comprehensive suite designed to cater to a diverse range of enterprise AI applications for fine-tuning. Now, Paul, given your knowledge and what you followed along with Cohere over the, you know, the years, how significant is this? And can, can you unpack what the importance is of these kind of fine-tuning capabilities? I think we just go back to uh, Karpathy's outline, like fine-tuning of models is one of the, the future things. Like, obviously, the more training data you can give it that's specific to your company, your vertical, your use case, the, the more powerful the models become. So, you know, Cohere again, in context, Aiden Gomez, one of the co-founders was one of the authors of the attention is all you need paper in 2017 at Google. He left and, you know, founded Cohere, which has raised uh, like 400 million or something like that. I, I think they just raised around a couple months ago. So again, another major player, they're, they're, path, their go-to-market seems to be going after enterprise and building like custom versions of these models that can be on-premise or in the cloud. Um, you can build, I think they're connected in AWS. I believe they're also connected in uh, Google Cloud. So you, if you're an AWS or Google Cloud customer, you can um, connect and fine-tune based on the data you already store in those clouds. So yeah, another major player and just making me realize like this whole episode was really all about the foundation model companies and large language models and what comes next, which honestly wasn't even by design. It just sort of like happened that way, didn't it, Mike? Like just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the topics for the week just sort of fell into it. But I, I think it's good because I think this is, I, again, I know this episode, we've covered a lot, um, but I really think like if you have to go back and listen to it a couple of times, I, I would do it. Mm. I think that there's a lot we talked about today that is going to become very apparent to you in the next couple months, the importance of these topics. Like, I, I really think that this lays a pretty good foundation for you to think about what are these language models going to be capable of and where are the major research labs going uh, in the coming, you know, three to six months. Hard to predict anything beyond that, but I think this gives us a pretty good roadmap for that. And so as you're thinking about the impact on your company and your business strategies and your tech stack and your team, this is the kind of you know, thinking you really need to have. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I found this episode helpful to prepare for, like just to, like watching the Carpathy video over the weekend and yeah. processing that and going back to some of the known Brown stuff we wrote and talked about and the, and the early Carpathy stuff we wrote and talked about and even rethinking about AlphaGo and that documentary, which I've probably watched like five times. I may go watch it a sixth time because I feel like it's starting to take on new meeting again. Like you start to look at the stuff because when, when you try and project what is Google Gemini going to be, mm. I think you have to understand what DeepMind is and what they've built with things like AlphaGo, because that was a breakthrough in 2016, like 2015, 16. And we're just now trying to ponder like, well, what if we could connect that capability to a large language model? Like what happens if Google pulls that off and you give this model the ability to search for answers and apply reasoning and, and take its time to like think through its outputs. Like that's wild. Like when you try and ponder, and I even made a note to myself over the weekend, like I have to think about what this means. Like some of the things I watched in the Carpathy video and some of the things that, you know, going back to Cicero with Noam, like, I don't know, like I, I need another week off after the Thanksgiving week to like really <laughs> think about all of this. It's, it's a lot, but you can start like in my head, I can start to see all the pieces coming together about how all this connects and what it might imply for all of us trying to figure out, you know, for our businesses and our careers, what it means. Well, it's definitely an exciting time. And I'll just wrap up here by saying, if you're trying to keep up with all the news, all the topics we have covered today, there's lots that doesn't make the list each week. So check out our Marketing AI Institute newsletter, marketingaiinstitute.com forward slash newsletter. It covers everything this week in AI that you need to know. Highly recommend signing up for that if you're new to our audience and haven't done that. And also just as a final note here, 
Uh, Paul and myself do many, many, many speaking engagements and workshops to help companies uh, get clarity on where they're going with AI and where AI is going and how that will impact them. So if you're interested in having one of us come speak at your organization, check out our website, go to about and click on speaking and you can find all the details there. Paul, thanks again for unpacking another crazy week in AI. Yeah, I, I was feeling like this week's going to be crazy too. So <laughs> we will be back next week with a regular scheduled program. So thank you. Um, be sure to subscribe and share if you get value from the podcast. And and again, Mike and I love to hear from you. So connect with us on LinkedIn. I know both of us are really active on LinkedIn um, and Twitter. I actually still, I, I, I'm just going to keep calling it Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's tw Twitter is my source for like 90% of what I learn about AI and how I stay connected. It is it's invaluable to me. So I'm, I'm pretty active there. So uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, we'd love to hear from you and stay connected. And until next week, um, we'll see you again. Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.